Pachango. Welcome, my friends, to episode 594. Can you believe it? 594 of Tangentially Speaking. I'm your host, Christopher Ryan. Two first names. Christopher Patrick Ryan. Three first names. How come I didn't get a last name? Uh, My guest has lots of names. Uh, today's guest is a very special guy. I've brought you a lot of very special people, and I hope to continue to bring you very special people because you're special people. So why not? Um, but this guy is, I don't, I don't, he might be one of a kind. I think he's the only person who fits the description I am about to give you. Um, he was born in Guam. Raised in part of the time in uh, Selma, Alabama, I believe. Part of the time in, I think he said, Brooklyn, uh, New York. He's a musician. He plays saxophone. Um, He said there were some other instruments he plays as well. So he's a multi-instrumentalist. His parents named him Jerry Allen Gardner. Teaches at the University of Utah, where students know him as Professor Gardner. Um, But our conversation today is primarily about Tibetan Buddhism uh, and to the people that he attends to through Tibetan Buddhism. He's known as Lama Thupten Dorje Gyaltsen or Lama Thupten for short, and um, he is a Rinpoche, which I believe is an honorific um, meaning that he is the reincarnated spirit of a recognized Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Uh, Did I mention he's, he's black as well? He's a black American dude who fell in love with Tibetan Buddhism 50 years ago, more or less, and went in into the deep end, got real into it to the point where now he's a recognized reincarnation of a Buddhist teacher. Um, Yeah, and he's a cool guy. As you as you probably are imagining, um, I went to hear him speak at a Tibetan temple just up the hill from where we're living here in Crestone, Colorado. He was in town visiting. I think he's based in Utah most of the time, and um, and it was fantastic. It, he started by acknowledging something that it's kind of the elephant in the room in a lot of spiritual traditions. And basically he started by saying, you know, we love these rituals. We love these 
um, these sacred paintings, these these knickknacks and doodads. He didn't call them that, but the stuff, the the accoutrement of spirituality, the the saffron robes and the titles and the the structures and the sacred chants and all that stuff. But he said, if your life doesn't change, if you come here and you go through all that stuff and you wear the costumes and you ring the sacred bell and, you know, you walk counterclockwise and you spin the wheel and you genuflect, but you leave the same as when you came in, then this was all just a show. This, this wasn't real. And I felt so refreshed by that. Um, because it seemed so humble and acknowledged something that um, I feel it, it contaminates so much religious slash spiritual thinking, which is um, a sort of overemphasis of form and formality and ritual. Um, to the detriment of substance, you know, it's like the people who, who plan their camping trip by going through the REI and the Patagonia, uh, websites and, you know, comparing these boots to those boots and, uh, this breathable rain barrier to that one and this fleece to that fleece. And they spend months and months trying to, you know, pick all the right camping gear. But, and then next thing you know, summer's over and they never really went anywhere, but they spent a bunch of money on cool sleeping bags and tents. And now, and I'm guilty of this. I can get pretty, um, consumeristic around camping gear and travel stuff. I guess that's why that example sprang to mind. Um, but if you never go, if you never go on the trip, what was the point? And, and I think a lot of spiritual pursuit is like that. There's a lot of picking the right backpack, but never really going anywhere. And uh, so it was very refreshing to hear him talk about that so openly and with so much humility. And uh, I thought, man, I wonder if I can get this guy in the podcast. And so I reached out through the the website, uh, which I guess is a Facebook page. I'll link to it in the show notes uh, in case you want to check out what's going on there. Um, and lo and behold, he got back to me and he said, sure, sure. Come up to the temple and, you know, we can, we can talk. Um, so Check out the photograph that uh, accompanies this in the show notes. I took it uh, to give you a sense of where we were sitting while we were talking. Anyway, awesome guy. A um, lot of really interesting things to say about deep stuff. Consciousness, meaning, why we're here, where we're going, where we came from. Uh, and also some biographical stuff just about his very interesting path through this life. I hope you enjoy this episode. I'm not going to talk much more. I think we'll just get right into it. I'm going to play you out with uh, a song called The Ballad of Sher Shimjer, I think is how it's pronounced. I played this once on the podcast before, but with 594 episodes, I think I can play things a couple of times without boring anybody. Um, this this came to my attention in a really 
bizarre way. I was living in San Francisco. It must have been 1991 to something like that. I was broke. Um, my girlfriend and I were, Peggy and I were living there, and I was looking for something to do in the Bay Area Guardian, the weekly free newspaper. I don't even know if it still exists, but back in the day, they had a section where it was like, you know, cool free shit going on. And uh, one of the things that particular night was a concert, and it was just billed as like a Tibetan blues performance. And it was at the Asian Art Museum out in Golden Gate Park. And so I called Peggy and I said, hey, let's go check this out. I want to see this museum anyway. And it, we could walk there from, from our place. So we walked out and we went into this little room in the museum. There were folding chairs, probably about 30 folding chairs. And um, we had no idea what to expect. I don't know anything about Tibetan music and like Tibetan blues. Like, what is that? Anyway, uh what happens is they, they bring this guy out who's blind, uh, a black American guy, and, and lead him to a stool, and he sits down, and he introduces himself. Paul Pena was his name. And um, he had written a song, which virtually everyone listening to this has heard, uh, Jet Airplane, by um, what's by him, but it was popularized by the Steve Miller Band. And um, there's Big Head in the 70s, I guess. Oh, Big Jet Airplane, don't take me too far away. Oh, Big Jet Airplane, because it's here that I got to stay. Uh, anyway, he had written that song and uh, a couple other songs that did okay, but that was the big hit. Um, anyway, he tells this story about how he's lying in his apartment, in his bed one night in San Francisco, and he's listening to a shortwave radio. I don't know if people still listen to shortwave radios. I used to have one. They're awesome. They're, it's just a it's a radio, but it picks up frequency of radio waves that travel all around the world because they bounce off the atmosphere. So you can go down the dial in a shortwave radio, and you're picking up China, and you're picking up people speaking you know all different languages and coming from all over the place. Now with the internet, you know there are apps that do this, but Back then, that was crazy that you could have a thing in your hand and listen to somebody talking, you know, on the other side of the planet. Anyway, he um, he tuned in to the, the Mongolian throat singing championships that were being held in Moscow. And, uh, and he heard these guys making sounds with their throats that he had never heard before. And it would just blew his mind. And what it is, Tuvan throat singing or Mongolian throat singing, my understanding is you they're making a sound in their throat, like a kind of sound. And they make another tone in their sinus cavity, in their, you know, behind their nose somewhere. And then those two notes go together and resonate and form a third sound. Um, so it's like they're using two parts of their anatomy to create three different sounds. Uh, and he, so he listened to this and he was just like, this is the craziest thing ever. I need to know more about this. I need to study this. And he ends up getting on an airplane and flying to Mongolia 
I think Ulaanbaatar is the capital of Mongolia. So he flies there. This is a blind dude. A blind dude gets on a big old jet airplane and flies to Ulaanbaatar and ends up meeting the person that he had listened to winning the world Mongolian throat singing competition out of Moscow. Uh, and he convinces this Mongolian throat singing expert to teach him, Paul. And <clears throat> lo and behold, they become good friends. Paul learns Mongolian throat singing and he enters the competition. And I think it was three years after the night lying in the darkness in San Francisco, listening to a shortwave radio, Paul came in second in Mongolian or also known as Tuvan throat singing. That's the story this guy tells sitting in the Asian art museum in a conference room with 20, 25 folding chairs, half of them empty. And it's the craziest thing I'd ever heard. Like, holy shit, man. So he plays a couple of blues tunes and he does a little throat singing. And then he says, and now I'd like to bring out my friend, my teacher. And he brings out the Mongolian guy. And the Mongolian guy is dressed in a traditional outfit and he's got a little whip and they do these songs together and the guy like whips his leg with the thing and for like percussion and it is the wildest thing ever these two guys are going on tour and this is their first stop that i just stumbled into um anyway so they go on a world tour and someone decides to make a movie about it a documentary and you can watch the documentary. It's called Genghis Blues. Uh, and there's a soundtrack, which is also called Genghis Blues. And the song I'm about to play for you, the ballad of Cher Shimjer, uh, came, comes off that soundtrack, Genghis Blues. And I believe that, that this song is about the experience that I just um, summarized for you. So I hope you enjoy this song, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation with uh, the Honorable Rinpoche Lama Dupton. And um, yeah, food for thought. Lots of food for thought here. I hope 2024 is going really well for you, and uh, I will be back with you soon with another episode of Tangentially Speaking. <laughs>
But my friend's got a new way that you sing like nobody ever heard sing. Come on, what you talking about? Honey, what you talking about? So today, what you talking about? Then Say, I'm gonna keep on going, people in the county next year. I might go over because I'll play my thing so they can hear just from you. Okay, monsieur, how may I be of help to you? That is one of the more interesting sound checks I've done. <sighs> Normally people say count backwards from 10 or something. Yeah. Um, what you were just vocalizing, was that a Tibetan chant of some sort? Or? Um, yes. As you were about to begin, I was thinking the first thing. We should arise uh, what's called bodhicitta. The enlightenment mind. The enlightenment mind is the mind that engages with the motivation and the intent to be a benefit to all sentient beings. So even as I'm speaking, as Chris has employed of me, why am I doing this podcast? And I decided I would do it because it might be a benefit to some sentient being. And those sentient beings that it might be uh, of use to, like the fly landing on my shirt, is my mother. And our mothers are suffering immensely in this world. What can I do? Maybe I can say something that will inspire someone, that will help someone in some way to alleviate their suffering, if nothing more than for a brief second. So what I was chanting was, I'll do. So this is to my first hero, superhero. <laughs> now, I have to warn you, Chris, I can be a little bit animated sometimes. Go for it. Um, so when we think of superheroes, Guru Nupache, which some people might know, is the progenitor, the uh, foundational figure of Tibetan Buddhism, 
uh, in Tibet. But what we come to know as Vajrayana Buddhism or has been labeled Tibetan Buddhism and how it developed over millennium uh, in Tibet and now has spread around the planet. So why we say he is a superhero? Because he is the manifestation of all of the Buddha's enlightened qualities of the past, present, and future. He is the one who is able to subdue, to subjugate, to pacify, to multiply and magnetize that which is most needed to be a benefit to ascension beings. In essence, he is the great Naljolapa, the great magician, the one who can manipulate and alter space and time itself. <laughs> and he brought uh, Buddhist teachings from what is today India up into the Himalayas. Not just India, really. Nepal. He brought these teachings from what's called Odiana, or the Swat Valley, mm. was located where? In the Pakistan, Iran, Iraq uh, area. Oh, right. Got so Persia. So West. this uh, enclave of mystics that existed in these ancient lands, in this particular place that he is said to have come from, was called Odiana. The mythically, whether it's true or not, Odiana existed somewhere what was called the Swat Valley, which is the Pakistani area, mm. which we know in that area was um, there are still many and were many icons of Buddhist uh, iconography, we could say. Yeah. Is that where the giant Buddhas were carved into the mountain that exactly. the Taliban blew up? Exactly. Uh, okay. Exactly. Right. Yeah, in this area. Well, I, I wanted to start. First of all, how, how shall I address Just say you? Rinpoche. Rinpoche, which means teacher. Rinpoche, for me, I am your servant. It okay. means, right. it sort of means, it can loosely mean the one who holds the seat of, I hate to say, but wisdom. Not that I have any wisdom at all. But it means sort of the precious, the precious one who holds the seat of wisdom. Right. And, and is charged with transmitting. And I have been given the permission and the blessings as I have uh, the mandate is to teach and to be of service. Right. This is my purpose in life. Well, thank you for bringing that purpose to this podcast. Well, thank you. Um, people often ask me when I'm in, on the other side, when I'm being interviewed, people yes. will say, why, why do you write books? Why do you do this podcast? Yes. And the only true authentic answer is to relieve unnecessary suffering. Yes. I've written two books, both of which that is what got me through, uh, what fueled the effort. Right. Because nothing else really seems worth it. Uh, and I mean, maybe that's just because I'm a pretty lazy, unambitious person. But the only thing that really gets me going is to try to relieve unnecessary suffering and in whatever way I can. This is bodhicitta. Um, as my teachers say, having clarity of motivation and intent with a change of attitude, with the right purpose, gives us direction. So what you just indicated is very Buddhist, but not to confuse your audience. It doesn't matter what ism it is. It is about being a human being who sees the world as it is, and perhaps as I say, I can't change this world, but I can change myself. And just perhaps, it will affect this world. Mm. 
And that's what you just said. Imagine if we all said, the actions that I now engage in is for the betterment of others and myself. Because we only put ourselves first. I'm important. I need self-cherishing and I-centeredness has brought about a vast suffering in our world. We must change. We must change our attitude. But it's not enough just to change our attitude and to change our behaviors. We must change at the root, at the depth of our existence, our consciousness itself. And do you think these aspects of human consciousness that need to be changed, are they in the in recent layers? Are they a result of the way humans have lived in large-scale societies, or do you think they go deep into our, our animal consciousness? Well, it's, you know, a little bit I know of your work and what you mentioned. I'm looking at the development of antiquity, the ancientness of our existence, and how conditions, circumstances, and causality has brought us to various ways of thinking. I guess what I would like to say, all aspects within the phenomenal universe are moving toward their highest potential. So in one way, we're all moving toward the state of, quote unquote, what we might call realization or enlightenment. But consciousness, and little what I could say of it, is like a blank screen, a slate. As I was just talking uh, to my counterpart, imagine consciousness to be like a Teflon wall, and we've been throwing stuff against it and sticking, you know, the old spaghetti joke. Right. And, but no matter how much you throw against that wall of consciousness, it always has its purity. If we could think about it in the first exception, when this, this thing, this entity, this mystery that we call consciousness, when did it come into being? How did it come into being? Well, that's still debated and researched. But let's say as a premise that it came in as a pristine state in the first inception of the universe itself. Because the factors to bring about what we call consciousness in life had to exist at that moment, even though I like to think just by chance, we're here. By circumstances, we're here. And so this consciousness, which has been conditioned through circumstances, has the potential to go in two directions or multifaceted directions. The one of ignorance, desire, attachment, anger, arrogance, pride, stupidity, lust, greed, etc., which brings about an array of suffering which we can see. But it also has the potential at its primordial core, pristine, unfabricated spaciousness, wakefulness, not tainted by the obscurations that we ourselves create, which are just an illusion. Sometimes it feels as if what we are yearning for in all spiritual traditions that I'm aware of is pre-human consciousness, the consciousness of rabbits and dogs and cats be here now. 
right? Everyone is Ramdas and be here now, be in the moment, forget the past, forget the future, be in the moment, which seems to be the way everything except human beings experiences consciousness. I, I think we have glimpses of it, but we fear it. We fear the open spatiality of our own existence. Why? That's a good question. Why? One, I, I think, because we don't know how to be with ourselves when there's not a lot of clutter. Right. Back to cause, circumstances, and conditions. Perhaps at one time there was a cultural educating of how to be with oneself. As you just mentioned, one of the most famous texts in our culture, Western culture, be here now, Ramdas, Richard Albert. But how do we learn to be at peace with ourselves when it's seemingly that in just to survive, we have to hate and kill and be divisive and label and so forth and so on. But I would like to think there was sort of a golden age when we, we had the ability to do that, but somehow it got corrupted and we lost our way. You mentioned something, uh, pre-consciousness, the unfabricatedness of a pristine consciousness that had not been pregnated with all of these various conflicting and afflictive aspects. Is, was there a time, I asked myself. But in the scriptures of most texts, it talks about returning to a place of innocence to be born again. I think we have misunderstood. It becomes divisive. Oh, you're of that tradition to be born again. I want to be born again. Born again to what? To innocence of what you just said. The innocence of my consciousness that was not tainted by the conditionality and the circumstances of that society or culture or community in which I exist. I think, I think it scares us, as you say, mm -hmm. and yet I think we yearn for it and people seek it in, in what we call addictions or vices. They seek it in sexuality. They seek it in drugs, altered states of consciousness. They seek it in dance, you know, they seek it in war. You know, one of the things you hear from people coming back from war is that it, my mind was so focused. Yes. And I experienced such love for the, the guys I was with. Yes. It's, all, it's almost like we'll take it in any package it comes in. We're so desperate but for it. But it's limited. Yeah. It's limited to, we are comrades, so I love you. But you are my enemy. I don't love you. But wait a minute. That's a human being. That's a human being. I'm a human being. So we arrived at this divisive, not inclusiveness, departmentalizing and categorizing who we love or don't love or care for or don't care for, not recognizing the inclusive sameness of being human being, yeah. how to be human. But in a way, maybe as our civilizations and our communities and cultures have developed, that's how they have developed to a degree, is that in order for my being to rise up, I need to step on you. But if you think about it in terms of survival, as you've done your research, at a time when I existed on all fours and I saw the ground that I couldn't see around me and I didn't know what was coming next. And somehow 
maybe there was a dead corpse. And as an animal, oh, wow, there's a whole world out there that I hadn't figured. And in that moment, all of a sudden, human. But we still had those tendencies of, in order to see, I must stand on someone else. Mm. Possible. I just I, things I've thought about also, but I also think in our development that we do yearn for an inner happiness and inner peace. We also yearn for an inner guidance that we have lost to connect to ourselves. We have lost understanding what does it mean to be of the spirit, not a, not spiritual. To be of the spirit, to be of the spirit that is moving towards highest potential of development in this small universe of a multitude of other universes that exist. Just one universe, um, as this, as the uh, Eason with being pointed out now. So the, the, your question is, was there a moment in time when the consciousness was pristine? And you know from your own research, going back to primitive societies, was there a cooperativeness in their existence? I would like to think there was some where they understood at a very basic primitive stage is that in order to survive, we had to bind together as what? As a tribe. Right. That we had to create a cohesive collective culture in order to exist against wild animals, against the elements, to find the proper dwelling and so forth and so on. And then somehow someone looked over the fence and go, hmm, what you have looks pretty good and I don't feel like doing a whole lot of work. Maybe I can take it. Yeah, or where my tribe is, there's a drought happening and we're mm -hmm. all starving. And I see you've got a lot of uh, dried salmon stored up there, yeah. you know. Yeah, my, my work, the second book particularly, is looking at this question. Yes. When did human societies shift from egalitarian, cooperative, uh, we survive best by surviving together, which is clearly how hunter-gatherers all over the world approach life, to a hierarchical slave-owning, women are lower than men, you know, animals are lower than humans. That, that whole kind of shift in my research appears to have taken place with the advent of agriculture and settled communities. I think, you know, that's um, what you just said. At what point in early civilization that we start to commercialize our goods that help back up? I would like to think there are still communities and uh, places on this planet that is exactly cooperative and sharing. I have a, you have a drought and I have water and food. Why don't you come and join us? And then we'll figure out how to uh, uh, invigorate those fields. But in the meantime, let's share. Yeah. I think there's still places oh, like that. There are. The best place to store extra food is in your friend's stomach. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and I think in Buddhism, I remember reading somewhere uh, a, uh, an aphorism or a quote that said, uh, that which is not given away is lost forever. Uh, yeah. All suffering in this world comes from self-centeredness and the cherishing of I and the importance of only myself, to paraphrase. But all happiness 
comes about in this world from cherishing others more so than oneself, which is the same thing. Give to others who are the same as you. Mm. And therefore, they look upon you with happiness. So in one way, it's selfish. Give to others so that they will look on you in a favorable. And then they go down the street. Yeah. And you know what John did? He gave me part of his, his elk. And they go, he did? Oh, he's a good person. I have to go talk to that John. Now someone else sees John as a good person. Right. But John only gave away because he knew it was in his best interest too. Some of the, the Europeans who came upon what we're calling primitive societies yes. with, with no insult intended, of course, were surprised that the people who were considered leaders seemed to have the smallest huts, yes. the least possessions. Yes. And anthropologists have, who've studied these societies have found that your status is uh, related to how much you give away, not yeah. how much you have. Exactly. Totally different. Yeah. And when they, there was a f famous case where they brought some native people from Brazil, this is in the 1500s, back to France. And they showed them around France and they met the king and the queen. And, and Montaigne, the great essayist, uh, met these people and, and he asked them, so what are you most uh, amazed by with, you know, Europe and France? And they said, we don't understand how some men live behind walls and their stomachs are full and other men sleep in the street and they're starving. We don't understand how this is possible. It was incomprehensible to them. We still don't understand. <laughs> yeah. We haven't come that far. Yeah. So what do you say? You know, earlier you said we're, if I'm quoting you correctly, you said we're, we're moving toward higher consciousness. So there's, there's a sort of uh, progress underlying evolution. Uh, now, are you talking about over lifetimes in a in a sort of reincarnation sense, or do you think, you know, historically looking at the planet, we're moving in the right direction? Because I think a lot. Of, you said in your teaching the other day, you were talking about some things, and you said, "Look how far we've fallen," yes. right? And you mentioned earlier we've lost consciousness, we've lost certain things. Do you feel that the human species is making any progress? I think so. And as His Holiness the Dalai Lama, I could be so bold to say, we're not, it might sound harsh, we're not branding people necessarily. We're not impaling them on post. This is not the Spanish Inquisition. This is not the Crusades. And we can go on and on with the atrocities that have happened through history, as opposed to the ones that are happening right now. But I think of it in this respect, from my own limited perspective, as more and more we are being educated through the sciences, is that this particular universe, from its inception, is expanding. And it's expanding at a faster rate. Mm -hmm. But that means everything within this universe is moving toward its highest potential of expansion. Every cell, every thought is expanding to its highest potential in that respect. I think in our culture now, even though we are, you know, famine and war and 
and fires and political unrest and so forth. But we also see a counter-movement. You are part of that counter-movement to educate and to at least say, let's question our direction. In some societies, you don't question that direction. But it seems like more and more communities and cultures are questioning and starting to say, yes, this is going on, but might there be another way? Where at one point, that's the way it is, so what? But I don't think we have that luxury anymore to go, that's the way it is. But we are constantly faced with, that's the way it is. It's almost like that old saying, which you probably have used before, it's so corny, it's darkest before the dawn. Mm. I think we're at a dawning. <laughs> and look how dark it is. It's getting pretty dark. It is pretty dark. Yeah, yeah. But sometimes, before we wake up, it has to get so dark, we can't even recognize the darkness. And that's why I, used, I was talking uh, with Kagan, apocalypse, Armageddon, the time of awakening, mm. the time of resurrection. Because if it needs to be completely destroyed so it can come anew. If you want to make, what is the farmer? A good farmer knows when to burn the field. Mm -hmm. Sometimes maybe we have to get even lower than we already are before we go. If we don't change, we will continue to design our own extinction. My joke is, we're moving to the point where the cockroach will look up and go, eh, I guess they didn't get it. <laughs> My turn. <laughs> My turn. Um, yeah. So I would like to think we are moving toward an expansive openness of enlightened consciousness, which is ever-present. In the Buddhist tradition, we would say that enlightened consciousness is ever-present within every entity. Every life form has the potentiality of this evolution. The circumstances and the conditions and the causes may not be there for it to come to fruition, but over a period of time, it just might. The possibility and the potentiality, I think that's what we have to say. It is like this now, but what is possible? And it took a thousand years for you and I to sit here, because you just said you've done a multitude of interviews. Mm. But you've never sat with someone like myself, whatever that might be. <laughs> <laughs> I say that to all my guests. Yes, but it took a thousand years for true. us to sit here. Yeah. If you look at the equipment, how long did it take for you to have this equipment 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you'd be pulling up a truck. Yeah. But now That's you true. have a little bag. That's evolution. And I think, I mean, this may sound self-serving but i've i've said this and written this before i think podcasting is possibly on a par with the invention of the printing press in terms of um democratization of thoughts yes because you and i are sitting here i press a couple of buttons i go home i upload this to the internet there's no company there's no government there's nobody controlling anything that happens and 50, 60,000 people can hear it. It's, very, it's a very strange moment in terms of power shifting. Well, you're probably familiar with Marshall McClellan. Sure. And here we are, just as he predicted. And even I thought for a moment, 
is this what I really want to do? And then I thought, well, if you're going to do something in this world, you better do it now because life is precious. Yeah. And fleeting. And if you're talking about changing yourself and how to be an instrument of change in the world, not that I'm seeking to change the world, then why don't you do something? So I did think for a moment not to. I'm glad you changed your mind. But I changed my mind. Thank you. Um, do you still play the saxophone? I still can play the I have three saxophones. I have a soprano. No, I have a, a soprano. I have two altos. And I have a cello. Nice. Yeah. And I could, if someone says, give me a tune on the sax, I could do it. Yeah. Now, if they said do something on the cello, that's still an aspiration. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And you played the saxophone before you became interested in Tibetan Buddhism. I started playing music in the fourth grade. Yeah. And I played all the way through probably my second year of university. I was practicing and I, was, I played saxophone and clarinet. I played all the sax. I thought I, I, I tried to I audition for, uh, what do you call that place? Uh, music, music and arts mm. music, uh, in, in, in New York. I, I was, I'm glad I didn't get in. But I was playing one day. I, had been, I used to practice two, three hours. And I got up to go to the bathroom and put my clarinet on my seat. I was so in playing and spaced out in some meditative state, I came back and I sat on the clarinet and broke it. I never had someone who was with enough foresight to encourage to say, I'll get it fixed. So I never was able to fix that instrument or get another one, and it took me in a different, uh, a different uh, direction. So in one way, prior to playing the clarinet, I was always sort of off in some other Neverland. I remember as a small child, at nighttime, I would just sit and just stare into the space at the clouds. I still do that. And then I would sit and stare into the clouds of the blue sky. And you know how when you see those puffy clouds and then there's an opening and the blue go through? Mm. And I would imagine that there was another world, another reality, and I would try to go through that. And so, and then when we would take trips, I would see how the moon would follow us in the car. Or I would sit late at night with a little mirror and play with moonbeams and shine them on the insects and see how they would crawl. But don't hurt them. So I always feel I was, and as my teachers say, I'm merely following my fate and destiny. And hopefully I will arrive at a place of harmony. But I would say to you like that. So before, before music, and then, how did I practice? Mr. Blank, that was his name, would put me in a little cubicle, and I would practice two hours every day. That was my meditation room. That was my salvation, mm -hmm. to sit in that room all along and just play. It seems the thread running through your life is this, there's a search for 
transcendence is that is that the right word transcendence through music solitude yeah peace connectedness a way of recognizing a unity of individualities a unity of belief systems whether it was the preacher in Alabama or whether it was the rabbi or watching the priest this ritual idea this idea of ritual discipline that brought us closest to our own inner sanctuary so how do you how do you deal with the issue of um you're familiar with with many different uh, spiritual traditions, yes. right? You're not born in Tibet, raised in this tradition. You came to this in what 1968, I think I read. I was probably introduced prior to that, mm-hmm. but if you want to use that as a a point of on the continuum, it's yes. a good year. 1968, yes. a lot happened in 1968. A lot of ha- <laughs> you know, in 1968, probably in 1966. I'll tell you what happened in 1966. I'm a young kid living in Bedford-Stuyvesant in Brooklyn. And I was so old, we had black and white TV. <laughs> I remember that. And I'm watching the Vietnam War. Yeah, Walter Cronkite. And in the street, there's this figure sitting oh, yeah. in the middle of the street. And he reaches over and he picks up, I don't know what, And he douses himself with this liquid. And very methodically and gracefully, he puts it down. Whether it was a lighter or a match, and he lit it. (sighs) Wow. I want to do that. (laughs) How did he do that? And he didn't move. And he did not move. One iota. And I watched the whole thing. And from then on, I've been affected. Mm -hmm. The ability to have that level of calm and still and discipline. Because I started studying the martial arts also when I was 12. Which uh, disciplines? Jiu-Jitsu. I started Jiu-Jitsu not for some arena, for survival. This Master Green, Sergeant Green, Sensei Green, had just come back from Okinawa. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, living in Bethesda-Iverson. And I lived in what was called Chaplain Territory. And I had no friends. I didn't want to join a gang. I was just trying to survive. And this man came along at the right time. So my survival and my first beginning was the discipline of training on the Sensei Green in the martial arts. It was, we can say jujitsu, but it was the jujitsu that came out of Okinawa and the Okinawan jujitsu that were able to confront and deal with the samurai. So it was hardcore. Um, but we would try to live not in gangs, not in drugs, to be good human beings. That's what he always instilled in us. Mm. And at, there came a point when you had to find other ways to negotiate your survival, at least you had some mythology that might help you. And the best one, run. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah, I studied Okinawan Kung Fu. Okay, so you understand. And I remember the first thing they said was, you never, ever fight if you can avoid it. Exactly. You run, you accept the insults, you only fight if there's no other option. And and in the the style that I studied, it was very brutal because they said, you don't fight unless your life's in danger. And if your life's in danger, then you're justified in taking life. And if you are in that situation, it is your fault. Mm. You had no business being there. Yeah. But if you're there, then take responsibility. Yeah. Because if you don't, then that person or situation will be perpetrated upon someone else. Yeah. The the point I would I wanted to make earlier is is I'm wondering about your relationship with well, let me reframe this. When I came the other day to hear your teaching, I was very um, happy uh, to see you start from this place of obviously humility, but also uh, a sort of light touch concerning the trappings of your spiritual tradition. I remember you said something like, if you leave here the same as you came in, then the sacred bell and the sacred horn and the mandalas and none of it means anything because it's just empty symbolism. You haven't changed. Right. So how do you, coming from your global perspective on different religious or spiritual traditions, how do you relate to the concept of certainty? Because most people who attain a position like yours within a tradition are 100% immersed in that tradition. They don't have the perspective of saying, this is just one path to the mountaintop, right? There, there aren't many rabbis who would say, Islam is a perfectly interesting and viable religion, as is Christianity, right? Most people are wedded to their particular belief system. Your audience can't see, per se, but I'm holding up what's called a mala. And that mala is composed of beads. And as I've said to my students, but what hold those beads together? This string. And without this string, all of these isms cannot stand. Mm. I must have been about 12 years old. I was living in Brooklyn. It was a cloudy, rainy day. I looked out of the munition blinds. You people go, what's that? <laughs> These blinds. I sort of had the fallacy or the fantasy of a gift of knowing things were about to happen. And it dawned on me the omniscient quality of that which is all-knowing Doesn't it know the suffering of this world? And being a person of color, which is an interesting statement these days, I'm living in Brooklyn in what was then called the ghetto. Now I couldn't afford to live there. And I looked out the window and I went, you mean if I was born in the deepest, darkest parts of, as you said, Africa, that I'm doomed because I haven't met that which is called Savior? But that which created me did not know that I would not have the opportunity. Therefore, there was no hope and I'm damned, no matter what. 
that doesn't make sense. Mm. There must be some other way. But in answer to your question, if we look deep into all of these paths that lead toward the mountain top, they're all saying the same thing. But we get caught in the symbolism and we lose the ground root of what it's saying, which you already just mentioned, this unity of a consciousness that's all-inclusive in which this consciousness has the ability, it's like quantum theory, to construct a multitude of realities. None of those realities are true or existing in and themselves, in and of themselves, but they only come into being because circumstances and conditions and causality and the circumstances of a reality that is existing at a given point is because of the greatest amount of energy that is being put into it as in this moment right now. So I was looking at a plane flying in the sky the other night from my retreat cabin. There's another reality that's happening up in that plane, which I can see. But I'm at this reality looking up to see it. But can they see me? But that doesn't negate the existence of either one of those realities. But what is the commonality of the string between those two? Those individuals are involved in the conscious perception of that reality. I'm involved in the conscious perception of this reality. And thus, that's the unity thereof. Mm -hmm. This is vehicle. When you lose sight and think the vehicle that you are in is the only vehicle on the road, you're going to have an accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think you have, my teacher always said, you have respect and, and openness and knowingness and learningness about other modalities. Recognize the differences, but go deeper and recognize the similarities. That's where we miss we don't see and connect to the similarities of our existence that stem from the basic consciousness of knowingness. That's the enlightened consciousness that all great masters have talked from. What you see behind me right now are nothing more than an illusion that is pointing to the expansiveness of consciousness. Whether it is a cross, whether it is Mecca, whether it is Bodh Gaya, whether it is the Torah, whether it's Ankh, what precedes all those things? What precedes them is consciousness itself. And as a very young age, I decided I want to know consciousness. I want to dwell into the depths of a consciousness that is able to manipulate the causality of perceptions that creates reality. That's what I want. If you're, I, I can relate to that. When, when I was a teenager, that was my primary interest as well. Yeah. Um, and in my case, it led to a fascination with travel to understand how do people in different cultures. Un I really wanted to, I remember thinking this three-phase thing, like I want to know what is universally human, what is cultural and what is personal. Yes. And I feel like we, we confuse those so much. Exactly. And so I thought, okay, the way I'm going to figure this out is through travel. Right. Through, uh, I mean, not intentionally, but I've always been fascinated with sexuality mm -hmm. because I think that's something that is both deeply personal, yes. individual, but also mitigated through culture. Right. Um, 
and also uh, psychedelics. Right. I was very interested in psychedelics as a as a way to experience consciousness from different perspectives. I, I read in, uh, a profile of you, and it mentioned that you were uh, affected by the Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yes. Was that the one with Timothy Leary and Ram Das who, who did the, the introduction? Do you remember? Well, that was just one. I was really, I would say probably at a young age, my other superhero, obviously, was Albert Einstein, Sigmund mm-hmm. Freud, Abram Maslow, John Lilly, the great psychologist. John Lilly. Huh? Wow, yeah, I, I know. Sensory deprivation. A very good friend of mine was very good friends with John. Yeah, Lowe. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, and the dolphins and, yeah. Yeah, so I tried reading theories of relativity, um, unified force field theory. What is he? <laughs> Everything is relative. Yeah. Okay, that's pretty easy. Why don't you say that? <laughs> right? So, and then... Obviously, I lived in the East Village. I was surrounded by an array of what was then, I guess I was maybe at the end of what was called a hippie revolution, flowers and this and blah. Were you too young to worry about going to Vietnam or or were you just lucky or what happened there? Both. Uh I was too young, but I also was, I was fortunate and blessed Mm. um, that I didn't go to Vietnam. Um, And also felt remorse about my friends who did go and were killed yeah. and that I needed to do something to be effective in a degenerate society. So I trained in the martial arts and with very learned masters who encouraged us to live good lives and be a benefit to our community as best as we could, to not fall under the sway of drugs. So when I first read, and, and then, yes, one of the, but the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Bodos Todos, was out obviously long before Leary. Um, and obviously, he started off, tune in, drop out. Or, uh, turn on, oh, tune turn in, on. drop but, out. But they got lost. Turn on to oneself. Mm-hmm. It's, when you read deeper into what he was saying, Turn on to yourself and come to an awakening. Drop out. Let go of your attachment to the illusion of this society in which we are creating, which you are part of and thus create. And let go of the falsity of your concepts. That's really what he was saying. At least I had another professor at Fordham University, again, uh, theoretical physics. That's how he presented it, mm. is that we, we didn't understand what he was saying. And then Leary got caught in his own pedantic rhetoric. That's what I was going to say. He, and I feel like we're, we're in a second wave of that. I don't know whether we'll locate it in psychedelics or, or counterculturalism or whatever it is, but... Um, I, I feel like one of the things we learn from Leary is the danger of ego inflation that comes with these altered states of consciousness. And now it's all around someone who goes to ayahuasca, to, to Peru and does ayahuasca and decides they're a shaman and they're uh, qualified to, you know, 
lead people and teach people. Um, and, and I think you're right. I think Leary got caught in the egotism of, of those he teachings. Didn't have the discipline of a guide. Right. He opened the door and led others to open in that door without having any awareness of the landscape that they were going into. Yeah. In our tradition, it is said, it is pointed out in the very beginning, I jokingly said, we're going to give you a, a PowerPoint uh, introduction to the nature of mind and to the illusion of the reality in which we ourselves create and are caught into the binds and the nails and the samsaric suffering, but not realizing it. Here's where we're going. I'm going to give you a ticket to get on the bus. Look out the window and daydream. And while you're daydreaming, I will be educating your mind. That you can, like you just said, we're going to go through a kaleidoscope of different conceptualities that arrive in different isms so you can see the unity that arises from one thing, looking out the window. Because when you look out the window, the window must be clear. But the window that you're looking out is the window of your own mind. Look with clarity and see. Let go, let be. Long jimpa. <laughs> like that. <laughs> if that makes any sense. I, <laughs> I wonder if there's something about Tibetan Buddhism that when you laugh like that, <laughs> you look like every image I have in my mind of a Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Is there a, a camp where you guys learn to giggle? Because I mean, <laughs> it's funny. It is funny. The illusion of a clown yeah. show. Yeah. That we ourselves perpetrate upon ourselves. Yeah. Live! I, I had a wonderful teacher. Not that many people know about Lama Kaze Rinpoche. But we would go through three, four hours of teaching. Our, our center was located in the Dagoda uh, building uh, by Central oh. Park. Yeah. Oh, where John Lennon was shot. Yeah, we were just floor below. Uh. We had a whole floor. And once we finished teaching, and then you'd go into the elevator with Lama Kazir Rinpoche, and you want to ask the question, but teaching finished. <laughs> now, I want to go out. Yeah. He lived, and he encouraged us to seriously engage ourselves in practice, but don't take yourself so seriously doing it. And I've had many teachers that. But that doesn't make you irresponsible. You don't give up on humanity or yourself. But the main thing is you maintain a sense of discipline through mindfulness. And when you make a mistake, own it and correct it. Don't be lazy. You may have heard me say, don't be lazy. I have nothing to give you. You want to come in and sit and you want to ring the bell and beat the drum and look at the face of the deities and think you have something and you all walk away with a glow. It's an illusion that you created in your own mind, but you didn't change one iota. You'll be angry. You'll be divisive. You'll gossip. And you'll only think about yourself. You call yourself following the Dharma. No. To follow the Dharma is to follow the path of truth. Be true unto yourself. You know who said that. Socrates. Be true unto yourself. Or oh, Shakespeare. Shakespeare also yeah. said, know thyself. In knowing thyself, 
see thyself in others and know them. But if you don't know yourself, how can you know the other? To thine own self be true, and it, it follows as night the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. Oh, Shakespeare, very good. I wish I could recall it's not Hamlet. I think that was Hamlet. Yeah, maybe Hamlet. That line, it was yeah. from Laertes, Take I think. flight, sweet angels. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I spent a lot of time in Shakespeare theater also. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you've done, you've, you're a dancer as well, is that correct? Yeah. And move, you taught movement? I taught movement in the university for 28 years. Um, I focused on Eastern performances, no theater, kabuki, banraku, uh, no, no kyogen, kabuki, banraku. These are the four classical theaters of Japan. Then I also spent time studying the avant-garde, uh, mysterious buto, the dance of darkness by Tatsumi Hijikata and Kazuo Ono-san. Um, so I was able to study directly with these masters. Um, obviously, some modern ballet, spent some time. Play. My whole life has been training to be a good person, mm. right? To contribute to society, to give back. Maybe it comes from being born on this small island, I don't know, leaving at a very early age and going from here and there and bounced around. I learned at a very early age if you want to survive, you better take ownership of your existence. You want your happy life to be? Then create it. Don't wait for someone to give something to you. You want something? You go and you create it. I wanted to come here. I got to meet this young man, wonderful young man. I made it happen because I dreamed it. You don't dream. You're afraid to dream because you think it might not come true. Because you're lazy. So what if it doesn't come true? What did Yogi Bear say? When you come to the fork in the road, what should you do? Take it. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> At least you made a decision. Yeah. That's important. Don't be afraid of making a decision, but make informed decisions, I say uh, to the audience. Make a kind, loving, and caring. Is it going to harm someone? Will it help them? Will it help you? Are you giving something away that will bring a smile to someone else? Give it to them, because more than likely, you don't need it anyway. Dream. I dream when I look at the stars. I am your servant. Even when I was a small child in Oklahoma, I would go to this slide, and I would stand like Lear. I would quote Lear and rail at the heavens. May I be your servant. Reveal your mystery unto me. Use me, is what I would say. I still do this. I just did this other night. <laughs> would you describe yourself as an ambitious person? Driven. Driven, yeah, because you've accomplished so much. I must do. I mean, you, you've listed, uh, and I read in this profile, uh, enough for five lifetimes. <laughs> the martial arts and the, the music and the dance and, like, the study. You have a PhD. You, you, like, are you, what are you driven by? Why not sit back in a hammock uh, with a tequila sunrise? I'm driven because this life is precious. There are four thoughts that turn the mind toward the truth, the Dharma. Four thoughts that turn the mind toward the Dharma, meaning it four thoughts that turn your mind toward the path of truth. That first one is the preciousness of human life. 
that this life is precious and it won't come again that I might remember, even though we may be living in the fantasy that we will, but we don't. Live every moment with passion. Live every moment with love and caring. No matter how many times your heart has been broken, stand up and do it again. Because that's life. That's what life is about. I've made some mistakes. I have no regret for anything I've done in this life because I lived. Mm. I lived and I dreamed and I barter with the Lord of death. Give me a little bit more time to create for the good. So you don't think that we come again and again in this reincarnation? We come again and again. But we don't remember. Uh -huh. Obviously, if we did, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing now. But part of, you know, some of the concepts in Buddhism that are a little bit sticky, yeah. one of them is renunciation. Mm -hmm. to renounce attachment, and we think renounce attachment to the worldly life. No, renounce attachment to that which causes suffering. What is it that causes suffering? Ignorance, desire, attachment, anger, envy, pride, stupidity, arrogance, greed. Why is desire on that list? I've always had a problem with this. You know, I again, think desire can be a very helpful right, thing. Right, but we have to remember we focus on desires looking for happiness. You know the old country song, looking for happiness in all the wrong places? Yeah. That's what we do. Right. Desire in itself is fantastic. Yeah. Believe me, I know. <laughs> but we also know it's not going to last. If you know that that which you desire is only momentarily, this is back to Lama Kazi, jump right in and eat every morsel of it. Mm. But don't expect that anything to be left as a result. Right. We become, that's why we say adopt desire. We are attached to the falsity of desires, which we think will bring about a lasting happiness. Our companions, our house, our car, our job, our life, and this and that. And then when it's gone, then we're in a funk, suffering. So that which we desire brings about suffering. That's why desire is there. It can. It can. Yeah. But if you know the perspective at a higher level, all is illusionary, all is fleeting and temporary, but it is precious. Experience it for it's there, like a bubble in space. Right. You see the bubble, wow, poof, and it's gone. You enjoy it for the moment that it's there, but you don't try to hold and keep it. Right. We want to hold and keep it. We are selfish. Enjoy and let it go. Be present in the moment. With whatever, whatever happens, Sometimes it's going to be joyous and sometimes it's going to be sad, but never any of them are going to last. If we know that, yeah. then we can indulge and engage, but with a loving, kind, compassionate heart for the benefit of others. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by Buddhism. I, I've, I've, you know, read somewhat, uh, and I've, that's always been a stumbling block for me, this, this, um, listing of desire along with greed and envy and, and these other yes. things that, because I guess the way I, I was raised somewhat similar to you moving a lot, yes, losing friends, finding friends, losing friends, finding friends. Um, and I think I always approached pleasure, love, friendship with an understanding that it's not forever, that it, it's so enjoy it now. Right. So when any, whenever I read or someone said, oh, desires, 
dangerous. And I thought, no, desire is great. Just, and I remember I was doing a Vipassana retreat and I was walking in the, in the darkness and I was trying, I was trying to square my own resistance to this idea that I should renounce desire. And, uh, I saw a shooting star, right? And I thought, that's it. Yes. I'm not disappointed yes. that the star isn't still blazing through the sky. Right. It happened. I feel lucky that it happened. Exactly. Even though it's finished so exactly. quickly. And that's how I approach desire. Maybe to clarify, there are nine vehicles of the Buddhist tradition and three major ones. And the three major ones are divided into three aspects. Hinayana, Mahayana, Vajrayana. In the, Ma, in the Hinayana tradition, and I'm speaking again from a, a place of ignorance, is what you just indicated. The Theravada is, for the el, is, from the el, uh, is the elder school. And in the, in the early teachings of Buddha, one, and remember, he taught in several ways. In that first turning of the wheel, it was in order to avoid suffering, renounce. Renounce that which causes suffering and its circumstances. Do not even look at the poison. Turn away and you won't suffer. Okay, so you went through that. The next method was, wait a minute. If I am doing that and I'm going to follow the Mahayana tradition, which says that I should put others' happiness before mine and be a catalyst for that, then I must be with that which brings about suffering and engage in actions that I will say this action is for the benefit of others. Okay, that's one way you saw the star. You engaged in the seeing of it. But then you came to the Vajrayana. And the Vajrayana, as one teacher said to me, is like the peacock. There's a poisonous root that the others avoid, but the peacock eats it, rips it out of the ground, shoves it into his mouth, and displays the beauty of its plumage. It was there for a moment, and then it was gone. We know how to take in the temporary and how to enjoy it because we have the understanding that all is fleeting in the phenomenal existence of our perception of what we call life, that there is no happiness in and of itself. Nothing is independent existing, that everything is interdependent existing. Therefore, it is temporary. So in its temporariness, experience it fully, and when it's gone, you're left with nothing more than a memory, but don't even hold on to that. Mm. Because why? Because you're closing the door through that narrowness for the next wonderful experience, audience, that is just waiting to be bestowed upon you. Yeah. And you'll miss it because you've closed the door. Because you're thinking about what you lost. Yes. What you had. Or what I had, what I should have done, yeah. why didn't it come to me, and blah, blah, yada, yada, yada. That's how I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I've taken an hour of your time, and I'm very grateful. Oh, Thank you. My pleasure. I, I need to pick an arbitrary place to stop, because if we just keep going, as long as I'm interested, we'll be here all night. I think probably we've bored our audience enough. I just make a closing <laughs> prayer. Yes. Uh,
Yo Tayata umgate gate peregate peresungate bodisoa. Tayata umgate gate peregate peresungate bodisoa. Tayata umgate gate peregate peregate peresungate bodisoa. All is emptiness but appears. It is amazing that it is empty, even more so than it appears. There's only emptiness. Recognize. Recognize. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day why do we waste our time thinking about a reputation running from to the ground. 